last several months in my personal reading, I've, I've been enjoying the Psalms and reading them and had planned for some time to one day get into the Psalms. And really, I thought about it last week and decided obviously not to, and we were in the New Testament. And then this week, again, really just Monday, Mondays are not fun if I don't know where I'm going to be on the following Sunday. And so these last few Mondays have been difficult because I'm trying to figure out where in the world I need to, I need to be. And Psalms uh, kept jumping out just because I was reading them in the morning. And then uh, I was at a meeting on Tuesday and the conversation that took place around the table uh, just really solidified in me that Psalm 42 is where we need to be this morning. So that's where we will, we will begin. In the, when we read the storybooks and we watch the television shows, if you like to watch a drama, TV, or, or movies, or just read the dramas, uh, whenever there's a problem... Uh, that arises, which makes for good drama, right? That's what, that's what drama is. Uh, a problem uh, surfaces, and miraculously, by the end of the 30-minute program, uh, everything is put right. Uh, by the last page, uh, the drama has been resolved, the problem has gone away, and we have the phrase, they all lived happily ever after. I think that might be why we like drama so much because we like it when things get neatly put back in place. But that's not how real life is. You have your own life and you can attest in your unique experience of life that that is not how life works. Problems come and they don't always go away. And they definitely don't go away within the 30-minute time slot that you wanted to give them. You turn the page hoping that this will be the end, maybe some glimmer of hope that this could be the end of this particular problem and you find yet a deeper chapter. The problem is exacerbated and you don't, don't know how much longer this is going to last. Our problems are, are hardly ever solved immediately and oftentimes never even solved completely. And the storybooks may end on a high note, but real life keeps moving on. I like to think about that sometimes as I'm watching a movie, and the uh, you can kind of hear that ending music pick up, and it's kind of fading in, and they're hugging. They've got this 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 awe moment, and the lights are dimming, or maybe they're riding off into the sunset, or they're hugging it out, or whatever they're doing. They won the championship, whatever it may be, and then the story's over. And the story makes it feel like that was the end, but in real life, you got to go from there. You've got to go do something now. You don't just ride off into the sunset. You get back to work. You go back into your home. You go back into whatever situation life uh, has presented you at the moment. That's real life. And for for the Christian, there is a distinct advantage in dealing with real life. Dealing specifically with the ups and downs, the drama of life, and they, they are the Psalms. I have an ESV study Bible. I, I, I love using that, and it's very helpful in many, many times. And particularly, as I read the introduction to the Psalms, I wanted to share just a portion of what it said, because I think it helps us to understand why we have the book of Psalms. 
Uh, it says, The Psalter covers a wide range of experiences and emotions and give God's people the words to express these emotions and to bring these experiences before God. At the same time, the Psalms do not simply express emotions. When sung in faith, they actually shape the emotion of the godly. The emotions are therefore not a problem to be solved, but are part of the raw material of now fallen humanity that can be shaped to good and noble ends. I like that phrase, that they are not simply there to express our emotions, but to shape our emotions. As we read through the Psalms, we will uh, identify very quickly with many. Some, maybe not so quickly, maybe not at all. We think, oh, wow, that, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that's not my situation. But many times, oftentimes, and as I was reminded several times this week, uh, it's not uncommon and it's not impossible to readily identify with Psalms, uh, specifically the type of Psalm that we have before us in Psalm 42. Psalm 42, and the reason that we're covering 43 as well, is because they are considered by most to be one psalm. Uh, There are a couple of reasons for that, mostly because of the theme that they continue throughout, but also because most of the psalms carry a superscription. If you look at the top of Psalm 42, it says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. But then if you look at Psalm 43, there's no superscription there. And so, uh, and it, but then there is one for 44. So that being said, most of the time people understand these as one psalm. I don't think it's wrong to separate them, but we are going to look at them as a, as a whole. This is a lament psalm. This is, I think it doesn't take a whole uh, lot of education and skill to read this and, and pick up. This is not a birthday party event. This is not a happy time. This is a very frustrating time. Most of us will recognize the first verse as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you, O God. We sing it, you alone are my strength and shield. To you alone may my spirit yield. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul uh, longs after you. It's a, it's a heart cry. It's a, it's, a, it's a prayer. It's beautiful. But taken all by itself does not carry the context that it, that it, and the meaning that it expresses when we read it with the other ten verses in this chapter. And so I want, to, I want to begin with that and help us to see why this is called a lament and why this even uh, helps us. Lament psalms are uh, characterized by pain and suffering, by confusion and disorientation, by feelings of abandonment, feelings of loneliness, you might be interested to, 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 learn, to learn, to know that about a third of the psalms are these types of psalms. When we think about the psalms, we think of praise to God, and 33% of the psalms are feelings of being abandoned by God, feeling left alone and rejected by God, not sure what to do. And I think that's fitting because real life isn't 100% happy, joyful praise, is it? Many of you sitting here right now uh, will have to really try hard to be joyful. Because there are things going on in life that are scary. There are things going on in life that are uh, fearful, that are unknown, and we don't really, we don't know how, how we should respond to those things. We don't really know how, how to put on a brave face. And, and maybe you try to, you're one of those that will just fake it till you make it. But even that gets old after a while. What do we do? when it's not always sunny outside? 
when we look and it's dark clouds, fog, it's cold, it's rainy, the fog of confusion, the long, dark, sleepless nights, followed by days that don't get any better, but rather continue on repeat for days on end. And so when we read a lament psalm, we need to be careful that we recognize that this is just as a part of Scripture as John 3.16. As, uh, as any other part of Scripture, these are God's words. These are God's words for us to understand and to read and to obey. These feelings that are expressed in psalms like Psalm 42 aren't shameful. They aren't, uh, they aren't wrong. And if you've ever felt like this, it's important before we begin to recognize that if you say, you know, I can identify with that, you're not wrong. You don't have to be ashamed of those feelings, and that's why we have these types of psalms for us to read. They are real. These feelings are common. These emotions are shared by more than we realize. Think about the millions of believers who have worshipped and read these very words that we read today. And ultimately, as I will try to help you to understand, the Psalms have been given to us to be sung and prayed to God. And think about the millions of Christians who have prayed these words to God. All the way from David and the Old Testament believers thousands of years ago, down through the, 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 the halls of time, through the New Testament, and through the centuries until today, people have been feeling these things and praying these words. So as we read Psalm 42 and 43, I think you can recognize right away that this is an emotional roller coaster. And as such, I don't want to try to just summarize and make my own outline from this and then pull out the main points. We don't want to read the Psalms objectively, but rather read them subjectively. Read them with our brains but also read them with our hearts. If you can, if, if some of you may be like, I don't know about getting in touch with my feelings, but that's what the Psalms are doing. They are getting in touch with your feelings. They are letting, uh, letting your feelings have a voice. And as we read it here, the psalmist is in a very dark place. Both, uh, he is both physically far from home and emotionally distant. And even worse than that, he feels spiritually distant from God. And I wonder if right away you can't relate to that. We've ever felt, maybe not physically far from home, although that, that does happen to us from time to time, and we are just away from everything that is familiar and, and everything that we love and that we are used to, but emotionally far. Maybe, maybe you sit in the same house as the people uh, in your family, but you feel emotionally distant or spiritually feeling far from God. And you, for as much as you can decide and, and tell, you didn't leave. But it feels some way, and even though your, 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 your Bible knowledge tells you God did not leave you, it feels like it sometimes, doesn't it? And the psalmist honestly shares what's going on in his heart and in his mind as he cries out to God. So I think that instead of just summarizing what the writer is trying to say here, it's good and better for us to take the ride on the roller coaster with him to experience the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, to recognize the struggle between objectivity and subjectivity, between facts, what we know, 
and faith, or I'm sorry, facts and, and feelings, what we feel between fear and faith. So we look at the, at the beginning of, of the uh, psalm here and we'll just, we'll just work our way through it uh, within the time that we have. We don't really know the exact details of this story. We don't know the backstory behind it. And I think that's helpful for us. Most of the Psalms, we don't know the exact details for the writing of them, uh, which makes it all the more helpful for us to relate to them. Some of them, for, t- for, for instance, Psalm 51, uh, we're pretty sure that that has to do with David's sin with Bathsheba. But for the majority of the Psalms, there is maybe an indication, but not a clear uh, um, credit to a particular story which would uh, kind of limit the way uh, who can sing it and who can express those feelings. But when they're left intentionally uh, a little vague and ambiguous, we can more easily identify with what the psalmist is saying. And more importantly, not only can we appreciate what he's going through, but we can join in the song that he sings to God. So in verse number 1 and 3, and, I, and I've separated these kind of into three parts, or maybe if you're thinking musically, three stanzas, three verses of this psalm to God. In verse 1, he talks about as a deer panting for flowing streams, his soul is thirsting for God. It's panting for God. Uh, imagine that, uh, that, that deer that has been in the wilderness and looking for a clear stream. It's, it's, it's hot. Maybe he's being chased by the hunter uh, and, and just wanting a cool, refreshing drink. You know that feeling that you get when you've been outside all day long and that first sip of water and, and, it, and it's the best taste in the world. There's, there's no other drink that would satisfy like a cool glass of water. And you have that sip and you feel like you could drink forever that cool flowing water. And he says, in this way, my soul is thirsty for God. I feel parched. But more than that, I'm, I'm desperate for God. And particularly to be in God's presence. I'm desperate to be in God's presence once again because he had felt close to God before. But at this point in time as he writes this, he doesn't feel very close right now. And and, and I like how he uses the word in verse 2, the living God, because to him, God is not an abstract idea. God is not some um, mystical power in the heavens who set all of this in order and leaves me to myself, but God is a real and alive, personable God. He is a God with whom we can have relationship, we can be known and know Him. And this is the God that He desires to drink in. And this longing causes him to cry out in verse number 2, when shall I come and appear before God? When am I going to finally be back in your presence? When am I going to stand before you and see your face? He longs for that. And then he, beginning in verse number 3, we see the effects of, 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 his, of this thirst. What has been happening to him that has caused him to feel so thirsty for God? Well, beginning in verse number 3, he talks about his tears have been his food day and night. He's lost his appetite. It's a steady diet of weeping and crying out. All the while, there are those around him mocking him and taunting him. And he'll repeat some of these, these phrases throughout his two, these two psalms together. Where is your God now? Where is your God you, you believe in God. You, you, you talk about how you have this relationship with God, but where is He now? 
And, and, and imagine the psalmist as he's, he's not eating and he's, he's losing weight and his eyes are, are marked by constant crying and that puffy, that puffy eye that we get when, when we've been weeping, but then constantly that's his, that's his appearance for days now. And to make it worse, those around him don't console him. They don't comfort him. They make it worse and they say, where's your God now? So what does, David, or what does the psalmist do in verse number 4? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. He prays, he pours out his soul, and he thinks. He remembers a time in the past when he worshipped with other believers. This is, this is interesting to me. I, I love this as, I, as this uh, came uh, revealed to me here. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with a throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers a time, maybe not so distant, but a time in the past when he was with other worshipers, when he would go with the throng and they would make their way to God's house. And even he would lead that procession sometimes. And notice it was marked by shouting and songs of praise. This is a happy time. He even says it was a festival. It was a great party. It was a joyful celebration. And he says, in my misery, in my thirstiness, in this dry and parched land, I'm remembering a time when it wasn't like this, when it was great, when I was with other people, not mocking me, but rejoicing and worshiping with me. And it encourages me. And the experience of worshiping with other believers was the encouragement that sustained him in this dark and lonely place. It's not only that the worship of God was a blessing to him and an encouragement to him, but the camaraderie of worshiping with other believers encouraged him. Derek Kidner, a writer, uh, wrote an excellent commentary on the Psalms. He wrote that for the psalmists, the heart of the matter in public worship was undoubtedly God himself. But the comradeship and stirring ritual of a great occasion were an added delight. And as I read through this, I realized, you know, that as we gather, this is a, a foretaste. This is an appetizer of the great worship that will be one day. When we stand before God, and as we read in the Revelation and we sing, we, we hear those songs that, that are sung even now, and as we enter in and we join in that chorus, what we do now, what we're doing at this very moment, is simply a foretaste of what we will do for eternity before our, our Heavenly Father, when we stand and appear before God. This is not the goal. This, this gathering is not the goal or the best thing. But this thing that we're doing right now is enough to sustain us for the best thing, for the thing that is to come. We don't long for church. We long for heaven. And gathering on Sundays, on the Lord's days, are those little appetizers that keep us going. And remind us, it's going to happen. It's going to come. When we celebrate at the table, we are doing the same thing. We are having an appetizer of that which is to come when we stand before God. And then notice in verse number 5 that that remembering leads him to do something. And I think this is interesting. What he does now is he begins to talk to himself. He starts talking to his soul. He says, uh, Christopher Ash describes it as preaching faith to himself or preaching to himself with the voice of faith. He says in verse number 5, and we see the exact same words in verse 11, and then chapter 43 in verse 5, Why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? 
hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. I know you're cast down, soul. I know you're in turmoil. I know you're languishing. But why? Instead, hope in God. This, this hope is not a, 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 I hope I get a new bike for Christmas kind of a hope. It's a confident waiting on him. I know it's going to happen. I, I just don't know when, but I'm confident that it will, and I can rely on him, I can trust him, and so I confidently tell myself to wait for God. Why? Because I will praise again. Right now is not a time for praise. I don't feel like praise. I feel like crying. I feel like not eating. I feel like I, I feel like I wish I could go back to those things, but none of the things that I wish I could have, I have right now, but I know that one day it will get better. I will praise him once again, and my current situation will not last forever because God is my salvation. Then we move into part two. It seems like, okay, he's worked himself into a, into a good, positive perspective. But then we, right away in verse number 6, my soul is cast down within me. Why are you cast down? I don't know, but I am. He, he's, he's facing the facts. This, this change, this positive change in perspective doesn't immediately fix this problem. And if you skip ahead to the end of chapter 43, nothing changes by the end of chapter 43. It doesn't fix his problems immediately, and it doesn't even fix his emotions. He's still cast down. He says, my soul is cast down. Things aren't ideal right now. Therefore, I remember you. And he describes the place that he is physically. And he says, I'm not where I should be, but from where I am, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think about you. I'm going to think on you, not from where I want to be, but from where I actually am. He's far from Jerusalem, which is the, the physical location where the Old Testament saints would worship. He's in a far-off place, a place of Jordan, and he describes it in detail in Hermon and Mount Mizar. He's surrounded by noise and chaos in verse number 7 as he describes it like oceans and waterfalls. The deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He feels like I'm, he says, I'm, I'm surrounded by noise and chaos, and I feel like I'm being overwhelmed. It feels like I'm drowning, God. It feels like things are just sweeping over me, and I can't keep my head above water here. And more importantly, he feels like God's doing it to him. Because notice he says in verse number seven, your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. He understands that these are the works of God. And though it feels like he's drowning, he says, God, it feels like you're the one doing this. And he acknowledges God's sovereignty in this situation. He says, I don't know why this is happening, but I know that God, you're in control. You could stop these things, but you haven't. And yet throughout the noise and the chaos and the struggle in verse number 8, he's comforted by the presence of God. By the day, the Lord commands His steadfast love, and at night, His song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. By day, He commands His hesed. That's that loving kindness, that faithful, steadfast love of God. And then in the night, He is comforted with the song. And notice, this song is a prayer. But this prayer, this prayer song, isn't the happy, joyful song Read, read the next few verses and see what this prayer sounds like. 
I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where's your God? John Piper said that it's no relief to say that God does not rule the wind and the waves. So the psalmist affirms God's sovereign love for him in and through all the troubles. And this song, this prayer to God who sustains his life, though it's not a happy song, it is a song of faith. Why have you forgotten about me, God? Why do I mourn right now because of my enemies oppressing me? He's saying, you could stop these things, but you haven't. He says these taunts that they throw at me are like deadly wounds. They get down to the bone. That, that old phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. This is the opposite of that. He says, their words hurt. They hurt down to the bone. I'm dying because of them. Because they constantly ask, where's your God? He said that a little earlier. They say it again. And these words are sharp and deadly blows, I think partly because he doesn't know the answer. I don't know where my God is. I, 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 th- I thought he was near. I thought he was the ever-present help in the time of trouble, but it just doesn't feel like that right now. And he finds comfort in telling God what troubles him. Because then notice what he does right away then in verse number 11. He repeats the refrain, if you will, the chorus of this song. So why are you cast down, my soul? Why are you in despair? I know you're this way, but why? Because you will praise Him again, so hope in God. Confidently wait for Him because my God will save me. And I will once again praise. And then part 3 begins in chapter 43. Vindicate me, God. Judge me, He says. Judge me, O God. Defend my cause against an ungodly people from the deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. Three commands there. Three things that He wants God to do to Him. And they kind of progress He says, judge me, vindicate me, declare me innocent, and then defend me, plead my cause against these ungodly people, and finally deliver me, rescue me from those who are untruthful and unrighteous. Why? Because God, you're my refuge, verse number two. You are the God in whom I take refuge. In verse number nine, he called him his rock. In verse number 2 here, he's calling him his refuge. It's the same idea. You're the one that that grounds me. You're the one that I hide in. You're the one that I I seek the shelter and safety from. But notice at the end of verse 2, but you've rejected me. Or at least it feels that way. Why have you rejected me? And why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. In verse number 9 of chapter 42, I was forgotten by you. And now I feel rejected by you. I run to you for safety and You've slammed the door in my face. So verse number three, send out your light and your truth. As Kidner calls it, the divine faithfulness of God. He says, send out your your light and your truth. And and then again, he, he gives a progression here. Send them to me and let them lead me and let them bring me to where you are. Notice there, let them bring me, verse three, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. God, I want to be where you are, and so send out your light and your truth so that they might lead me to your presence. Now, in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament understanding, that was the, the city of Jerusalem where the worship of God was supposed to take place. 
We can understand this in, in New Testament times as, as the place where God is now. We, we think of heaven and we think, God, lead me to where you are. And I, and I think about that day when as we sing, what a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. I think about that day when I will be with him. It's what we mean when we pray uh, phrases such as, your kingdom come, your will be done. God, I want you here. I want you to fix all of this. Or when we pray, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. I don't want to be here right now, so send your light and your truth to me. Let them lead me away from this. Let them bring me to you and deliver me safely into your presence. As the Old Testament saints in Revelation, uh, as, or, I'm sorry, I don't know if they're Old Testament, but they say, oh, how long, O oh Lord? How long? Father, how long? How much longer is this going to be? And notice David, or the, the psalmist says that when he gets there in verse number 4, then I'll worship you at the altar. He says, I will go to the altar of God, to, to God my exceeding joy, and I'll praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. And again, once more, he's kind of picked up some steam now, so he says, so, why are you cast down on my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Why? For I shall again praise Him. My salvation and my God. My God will save me. It may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, but my God will save me and I will once again be in His presence and praise His name. Now, the, the, the Psalms have been given to us to sing and to pray. And before we can do that, we need to understand what they mean, which is what I've attempted to do just now. We want to understand why the psalmist wrote these things. We want to understand why the Old Testament saints would have continued saying these things. This was their songbook. We, we have songbooks in front of us, the celebration hymnal. The Old Testament saints went to the temple, they went to the synagogue, and they sang from the Psalms. That's what their, that's what their songs were. Why did they sing them? What did it mean when they sang them? What did it mean when Jesus, think about that, Jesus walked on this earth for three, uh, 33 years and was was just like any other Jewish worshiper. And he would sing the Psalms about himself. Even on the cross, Jesus quoted lyrics from a psalm. As I think back on these words, Jesus could sing these psalm, this psalm and mean it. Jesus panted and thirsted, desired for God. Jesus felt forsaken by God. Matthew 27, 46, standing, uh, hanging on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was taunted and mocked by his enemies. Jesus wholly and perfectly trusted and hoped in God, his salvation. And so then into us as New Testament believers, though maybe we're not in the exact same situation, we have to determine, and we'll talk about this a little bit more if you're, if you're here tonight as we look through this, uh, the, the Psalms in general. What does it mean for me to sing or to pray these Psalms? My joining in with this song expresses a fellowship with the writer and with every other person who has added his voice or her voice to, this, to these words. And it identifies me with the meaning and the message and the expression we can simply, as we hear the Psalms read to us and, and taught to us, we're faced with a choice. We can simply sit back and enjoy it, or we can join in and sing it. We can appreciate the soloist, 
Or we can get up out of our seats and join the choir. And that's what the Psalms were intended for us to do. Not to simply read them and say, oh, that's so beautiful poetry. I'm so glad I'm not in that situation. But in fact, to metaphorically get up out of our own seats and walk to the front and stand behind the choir leader, Jesus Christ Himself, and say, I sing this with you. I identify with you. So as I read through this, I ask myself, do I ever feel this way? I wonder if you feel this way. Do you ever feel alone? Forgotten by God? A continual mourning? Unending tears? Voices of doubt from inside and from outside? You feel like your life is characterized by chaos and noise? Are you overwhelmed? You ever feel like you're drowning? You ever feel like you're dying? Two action points that we can take from this psalm then. Number one is we talk to God about it. That's what the psalm is, is a prayer to God. The psalms were given to us to pray them back to God. They shape our emotions. They give a voice to how I feel. Have you ever been so upset you just don't know how to express that? The psalms do that for us. And these psalms of lament, though, as we read them and as we understand them, they don't stay down in the dumps. I feel horrible. But as I pray the psalm of lament, it doesn't leave me there in my misery. It always leads to praise. It always finishes with a song of confidence, a hymn of praise is, is, is here. Why are you cast down? Hope in God. He is my salvation. Talk to God. And then number two, talk to yourself. Identify uh, uh, the, the, the voice in your head as not the truth. Instead of listening to yourself, talk to yourself. I, I ran across this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones a 20th century preacher, he said, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? He goes on, he says, take those thoughts that come to you the moment you wake up in the morning. You've not originated them, but they're talking to you. They bring back the problems of yesterday, etc. Somebody is talking. Who's talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. And instead of allowing this self to talk to him, the psalmist starts talking to himself. His soul has been depressing him and crushing him, and so he stands up and says, Self, listen for a moment, and I will speak to you. And that's what we find in this refrain of these two psalms. Why are you cast down, my soul? Hope in God, soul. You will praise Him again, soul. God will save you, O my soul. And then notice, as I said before, this psalm situation hasn't changed but he's now learned how to deal with it. He couldn't change his circumstances, so he changed his perspective. He will again praise. So as we join in the psalmist in praying this prayer, will we recognize that we will again praise one day? One day we will stand in God's presence. We will thirst no more. We will be satisfied. Because of the work of Christ, because of the power of the gospel, we can have this hope in God. Not in what I'm going to do, but in what He has done for me. Therefore, in times of trouble, confusion, chaos, noise, we can pray in Christ. And it's only through Christ 
but we pray in Him to our Father. We have hope in God because of Christ. We can confidently wait for Him who is our salvation. We can navigate through life confident and helpful, anticipating that glorious day when through His divine faithfulness we are brought into His presence. And there, forever and ever, we worship and praise the God of our salvation, who is our exceeding joy.